Where does the term tank top come from? And what was the best toy of the 20th century? In your opinion? Apparently everybody. Okay. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and learn something with some fascinating trivia. All right, we've got it right here, Marcia. Where did the term tank top come from? Well... We usually think of this with those... Uh, sleeveless. Sleeveless t-shirts men wear. Uh, Bruce Willis wore them. Marlon yeah. Brando well, wore them. women wear them, too. Women wear them, too. Yes. Where did the term come from? I don't know. People used to be dumped in tanks, and they'd put those on. Well, the word tank applied to a certain thing for recreation in Great Britain. Tell me. Swimming pools. Oh, really? Well, that makes sense. The pool tank. Yeah. During the early 20th century... British swimming pools were called tanks. I've got to dive in the tank. Got to take a dip in the tank. Yeah. And British swimsuits were known as tank suits. That makes sense. Well, tank tops were part of the two-part bathing suits back then for both genders. So if swimsuits were tank suits, the top part of a tank suit was the tank top. And that's where it came from. Awesome. Information, (laughs) Bob. I can take that to the bank. Okay, Bob. In 1999, Mm -hmm. this toy was elected... Toy of the 20th century. What was it? It was Barbie. Nope. It wasn't. No. Oh, no. Not at all. Teddy Ruxpin. No. No. Um, 20th century, Bob. Oh, the hula hoop. No. Okay, what would be the toy of the 20th century? Wait a minute. Let me think for just a moment. Still popular. Still popular. Was it Play-Doh or was it... What's the other thing I'm thinking Think about of? about it. I know. It bounces. What is it called? No, it's not. Silly putty. Nope. Okay, how about Slinky? No. I'm out of Up toys. There. I'm yeah, out you of are. toys. But okay. this is one everybody has in their basements. We certainly do. It is Legos. Oh, no kidding. Yes. So who's the source for this? The British Association of Toy Retailers. Okay. And uh, uh, Legos are still very popular. The Danish Building Blocks toy was named by its founder, Ole Kirk Christensen. And the name Lego he made up by taking the first two letters of the Danish words leg and got, <laughs> meaning play well. Play well. Yeah. All right. So that's how he came up with Lego. Okay. Marcia, I have a number of questions today on state fairs. You know, this is a time of the year where... State fairs are taking place or have concluded. Uh What state hosted the first state fair in the United States? I'll say. Let me give you a choice. (laughs) Oh, better yet. New York, Florida, California, or Indiana. And I'll give you the date, too. 1841. New York. That is exactly right. The uh, state of New York airmarked $8,000, which was a big sum of money back then, and it was for the promotion of agriculture and household manufacturing in the state. It drew 15,000 people, the first one in 1841, mostly farmers who heard speeches, saw animal exhibits, and checked out manufactured goods. And the most popular event, this would be a major event today, Uh a plowing contest. (laughs) (laughs) Wisconsin still has them, I'm sure. I've got another one I'll ask you right away here, okay? okay? This is one of the big things you'll find at almost every state fair. It's sugary. It disappears almost immediately. 
And it was invented by a dentist, believe it or not. What was it? Oh, 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 oh. Gummies? No. Here's some choices. Candy apples, cotton candy, funnel cakes, or kettle corn. One of those was invented by a dentist. Yeah. (laughs) Kettle corn. Well, that's probably the least difficult one from the standpoint of sugar. That's oh, probably yeah. a good was, one. Yeah, I know what it was. It was the cotton candy. That's exactly <laughs> right. Oh, God. It might seem pretty odd for a dentist to invent a food from nothing but sugar, but that's exactly what William Morrison did in 1897. His name lives in infamy in the Dental Hall of Fame. Okay. With his partner, he created a machine to spin sugar into a light, airy candy. They called it Fairy Floss or cotton candy, as it became known. It was a huge hit at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. All right, Bob, you'll like this. Mm -hmm. One famous rocker was overseas and kept hearing the famous ballad, Oh, Solo Mio. Remember Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. It was an operatic piece written in 1898 and popularized by Mario Lanz in the 1950s. The answer is Elvis. Shoot. <laughs> well, he did. What's the song? Um, Gosh, it's based on that song. Yes. It's Now or Never. That's it. That's it. He was enchanted with that song when he was in the army over there. Okay. And he kept hearing it and asked his writers to devise an English version of that, particularly for him. And it was Now or Never. And it was another number one hit for Elvis that displayed at that time a whole new level of voice range for him. Yes, yes. Uh, After leaving the Army. Years later, Priscilla Presley, his widow, Mm -hmm. said Elvis loved that song more than any he had ever recorded. No kidding. Yeah. Who are the writers that's credited to? It was written by Wally Gold, Aaron Schrader, and Eduardo Di Capua. Okay, Marcia, there is an author you mentioned at lunch today that you're reading, Jodi Picoult. Uh Uh-huh. So I have a question about her. Okay. She's a famous and very popular novelist right now. Mm-hmm. What connection does author Jodi Picoult have with Wonder Woman? <laughs> well, hmm. Hmm. I'll say, I don't know, is her sister play Wonder Woman in a movie? No, tell me. American fiction writer Jodi Picoult, she's published 27 plus novels. She also wrote several issues of Wonder Woman. Oh, she did? Yeah. She was born in 1966. She studied creative writing at Princeton, got a master's in education from Harvard, and she was the writer of the Wonder Woman series for DC Comics for a time in 2007. She wrote four numbers in the comic book series, volumes three, four, five, and six, just as her first novel, 19 Minutes, was climbing the charts. It hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list that uh, June. While in college, she published stories in Seventeen magazine. Uh Uh-huh. After graduation, she edited textbooks, and for a time, like Stephen King, she taught school. It's like many of us. We wrote every kind of thing you can imagine. But since 2007, Jodi has been one of the most successful novelists in popular literature. Her books have sold 40 million copies and uh, have been translated into 34 languages. Jodi Picoult. She's a good writer. And she wrote for one Wonder Woman. <laughs> All right, Bob. Do you think anyone ever personally owned Stonehenge? Well, I imagine that land was owned by families over the centuries, I would assume. Well, you think right. Yeah, those big stones out there by the cows. <laughs> you know, we got the cows out there yeah, around the big it, stones. It was privately owned for centuries. You're right. Okay. 
Starting in the 12th century, one family, the Atrobus family, owned it right until the 19th century. Holy, they owned it for 700 yeah, years? Yeah, it was, wow. it was handed down and handed down. And the Atrobus family even uh, appointed a warden in 1822 to guard it because suddenly it started word getting around, this weird thing out in the land there was... Uh, oh, it was attracting uh, people. That's exactly scavengers right. Scavengers So and people stuff. would come and uh, chip off pieces by it. Oh, wow. And that got them upset. The heir to the Antrobus Baronactesi was killed during World War I, and the baronet himself died not long after. The land was auctioned off to a wealthy local barrister named Cecil Chubb in 1915. <laughs> 1915? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Chubb believed that such a place should be owned by the public, and he gifted it to the British government. As a thank you, they knighted him. <laughs> well, that's a nice thank you. Speaking of the dead and dying, Marcia. <laughs> Always a popular subject in this house. What's the percentage of Americans today who are buried in caskets versus cremation? Things have been changing oh, over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah, definitely shift in the percentages. So what do you want? Uh, percentage? How many people are cremated today as opposed to buried? I'll say 70% of people are cremated today. Oh, really? No, it's not that much. No? Okay. No, according to the story, Flowers, Flames, Open Skies, One Man's Ideal Farewell. <laughs> That's a great title for a story from the New York Times. More than half of Americans today are now cremated after death. That is a remarkable change from the 20th century when it was considered against sensibilities. Yeah. Okay. What famous rock and roll song, Bob Smith? was inspired by a bottle of Pepsi-Cola being agitated. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, so this is something about fizzing or, uh, let's see, so they shake the Pepsi up and it would explode. Shake, rattle, and roll, would that be it? Not too far away. Okay. All shook up. All shook up, really? <laughs> so it came from somebody shaking a bottle of Pepsi? Yeah. Songwriter Otis Blackwell was trying to repeat his Elvis hit, Don't Be Cruel, but he had a huge writer's block. And one of the owners of his publishing company happened to be shaking up a bottle of Pepsi, and it inspired the guy to suggest to Blackwell, why don't you write something with the title All Shook Up? Well, he did, and it was the biggest selling single of 1957. No kidding. I'm all shook up. Uh-huh. And it came because somebody was shaking up Pepsi. That's right. <laughs> well, see, there's inspiration everywhere. everywhere. That's right. Okay, Marcia, again, another State Fair question for you today. Okay. The Alaska State Fair holds a contest mimicking the calls of what animal? Here are your choices. The polar bear, uh -huh. the moose, uh -huh. the penguin, uh -huh. or the seal. I'll say the moose. You're right. How oh, good. Yeah, many state fairs have those things like cow calling contests yes. and stuff like that. But uh, cattle are kind of scarce in Alaska. And so the contestants there bellow out their best moose imitations. <laughs> <laughs> the moose call contest Ooh, at the uh, yeah, what, Alaska State you Fair. you know what a moose sounds like? No, I don't. No? Okay. Do you? No, not at all. <laughs> oh, awesome. Who is Bob? Who is the world's largest toy distributor? The world's largest toy distributor? Yeah. Is this the name of a toy company, I would call it? It's not a toy company, no. Is but it a, they distribute more toys than any other company in it, the world. Well, FAO Schwartz did that years ago, but yeah. I don't know who it is now. And then Toys R Us was a huge one. They were a huge toy yeah. distributor for years. This is bigger. Okay, what is it? Since the creation of the Happy Meal in 1979, <gasps> no kidding. McDonald's has leapfrogged all the industry giants, such as Hasbro and Mattel, to become the world's largest toy distributor. Who would have thought? Wow. 
Wow, that shows you the uh, Happy Meals, uh, you know, popularity mm-hmm. over the over the years. So, are they still very popular? Yep. Happy Meals. All told, McDonald's distributes 1.5 billion toys wow. worldwide each year. As part of a recent effort to be more environmentally conscious, the company has pledged to largely phase out plastic toys in Happy Meals and has vowed to work to provide kids with plant-based or recycled toys instead. Okay, well, at least So they can have a little asparagus toy they Trying chew. to become a little more environmentally sound. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Marcia, another state fair contest okay. as we wrap up the summer. What product holds a recipe contest across multiple state fairs? So this is a brand-name product. They have contests for meals made with their product across multiple state fairs. What is it? Here's a clue. You've never eaten it before. <laughs> <laughs> I have, but you never what ate it before. What was the original question? What? what product holds a recipe contest across multiple state fairs? Okay. it's Is it pie or cookies? No. Is it uh, a recipe contest? Cake? I'll give you the name of the company. Hormel Foods. Chili? No. Well, what? Spam! Oh, really? No. <laughs> State fairs have always been really? a hotbed of culinary innovation, and Hormel Foods decided to harness the creativity of fairgoers by holding local cooking competitions featuring their flagship canned meat, Spam. And in 2019, April Weinrich's Spam Baked French toast recipe. Oh wow! Took top honors at the Minnesota State Fair. Spam and French toast. Yes. Well, help me here. I'm not. Well, I'm you've not never tasted spam. No. You don't know how delicious it can be. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Where will you find Bob a McDonald's restaurant with leather couches and table service? Leather couches <laughs> and table service. Table service. Leather. I would say that's in cattle country. So I'll say either Texas or Oklahoma. <laughs> No, it's over the pond, Bob, over the pond. Oh, really? Yes. While she's not whipping up McFlurries, Britain's <laughs> Britain's reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth, technically owns a branch located in Oxfordshire, a branch, a branch of McDonald's. Yes. That's right. We talked about that. Yeah. And this is, I didn't know it was such a fancy, pancy place, though. <laughs> uh, and so it's a very nice one. The location, it says, is truly fit for royalty with leather couches, table service, and a menu that includes English breakfast, tea, and porridge. That's, uh, I thought that well, was... that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. I could, I'd love to go there. That McDonald's just for that breakfast uh-huh. is something new. <laughs> Oxfordshire, England. All right, Marcia, time for a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, back to the United States and state fairs, Marcia. Okay. Here is a contest where a 2,000-pound vegetable... <laughs> No. Oh, it had to be a pumpkin, right? Well, I'm asking you what it was uh-huh. and what state it was in. It was it was a pumpkin? Yes, it was a pumpkin. <laughs> okay, and where was the 2000 pumpkin? It had to be in the Midwest, was it? No. No, it didn't have to be in the Midwest. It's a state California. We've... Well, if you just be quiet for a moment, I'll give you a clue. <laughs> it's a state we just mentioned a moment ago. It's not in the Midwest. It's not in the 48 states. It's Alaska. It's Alaska! They grow pumpkins in Alaska. Well, the Alaska State Fair, it's best known for, uh, well, the moose calls, but also 
great fruit and vegetable competitions. They have giant fruit and vegetable competitions there. And past heavyweight champions have included a 2,051-pound pumpkin in 2019, which broke the previous record by 600 pounds, and a 138-pound cabbage in 2012. So everything's big in Texas. Well, it's bigger in Alaska, where they have giant fruit and vegetable competitions at the Alaska State Fair. That's so cool. (laughs) Wow. That's hard to believe, isn't it? No. (laughs) I just told you about it. Why would it be hard to believe? That's right. Just a big pumpkin. We have those big big-ass pumpkins here in Cedarburg. I don't think we call them that, Marsha. No, but they go uh, use them in, in a regatta, a pumpkin regatta on the creek, right? That's right, they, that's right. They actually hollow them out. People get in them, and they go down the creek. Oh, they row them down the creek. Contest, okay. yes. Bob, and this is uh, something I'm asking because the other day we were driving past a McDonald's, and mm-hmm. I looked up, and I saw that they had blocked out the how many burgers sold? Oh, yes, the blank billion they sold. Of, they ran out of digits. Mm-hmm. I think it said 99 billion. Right? And that was crossed out. You're right, yes. Yeah, so it was my theory that they're building a new sign so they can add more digits. Okay. So my question is, has McDonald's stopped counting how many burgers are served? I think the answer is yes, they did stop counting because they got it over 100 billion and they thought that's enough. That's enough for That's anybody. enough counting burgers here. They sold their billionth in 1963. Wow. Yeah, they did it live on Art Linkletter's variety show. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. Art Linkletter's house party. I remember seeing that when I was a kid. They officially stopped keeping track in 1993. But according to the training manual, Bob, McDonald's locations combined sell more than 75 hamburgers per second. Jeez. <laughs> well, that's enough about McDonald's hamburgers. We had two or three questions we on sure today's did. show. That was my last one. Let's turn to baseball, Marsha. Okay, fun. What <laughs> teams have the biggest payrolls in U.S. professional baseball? New York Yankees. I'll say New York Yankees and the Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles what? I, who, what is their name? Not that. I know football better. They got their name from their years in New York when people had to run around and Dodge trolley cars. The Dodgers. Yes, the Dodgers. (laughs) That's right. It is the New York and Los Angeles teams. In 2022, the Los Angeles Dodgers had a payroll of $280.8 million on opening day. And second was the New York Mets opening day. Their payroll was $264 million. So I would have thought the Yankees would have been number one or two, but it's the Mets and really, that is yeah, hard to believe. The Mets and the Dodgers, that's according to Cott's baseball contracts. Huh. I wouldn't have guessed the Mets. I anything. think the answer is you were wrong. <laughs> but you can say that's that. That's your happy place, that isn't is it, That is my Bob? happy place. Okay, Bob. What famous musician composed songs for Tin Pan Alley under the name of Jim Hoyle? Jim Hoyle? Mm-hmm. Famous musician. So mm-hmm. this was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Except he was around for a long time after Oh, really? That. Was he known more as a singer or more as a uh, songwriter? Uh, he was uh, a musician. Musicians play instruments. Yes. In Tin Pan Alley, he played the piano, but that's not what he was so famous for. Okay, that was kind of where I was going. Okay. Uh, so he was famous for another instrument then. Yes. Was he famous for a trumpet? Nope. Famous for another wind instrument? Nope. Was he famous for... Hmm. A drum? No, you're doing good, though. Was he famous for... <laughs> for being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Was he famous for, like, flute or it, something like that? Nope. This is a world-famous person. 
Okay, I don't know. Yasha Heifetz. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, he learned the violin starting at the age of two. He was an absolute prodigy. Yes. And it, uh, from Russia. World famous classical violinist. I had no idea that yes. he composed songs for Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, under that name, Jim, Jim Hoyle. Hoyle. Jim yeah. Hoyle. And he played the piano. <laughs> I'll be darned. And uh, yeah, he made his Carnegie Hall debut at 16. Wow. And he launched a prolific recording career after that. He was also awesome at playing the piano, and he just really dug Tin Pan Alley, and he'd just use another name, and so it didn't uh, tarnish him in any way. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Did he write anything we would have known? I don't personally recall this hit, but okay. it was basically about fake orgasms. What? <laughs> it's called, When You Make Love to Me, Don't Make Believe. Ah. <laughs> That's one of his Tin Pan Alley yeah, songs, before yeah. he became a classical... No, during. He was always a classical star from the time he was 15. No kidding. So, so this, this was, was during yeah. the time? Yeah, that's why he used the fake name. I'll be darned. That's hilarious. What's that title again? When you make love to me, don't make believe. Okay. <laughs> None of that when Harry met Sally stuff. Uh, I'll have what she's having. Okay, thanks a lot. I always uh, am impressed by these stories of people who tried all kinds of things. Yeah, you me know? too. Well, usually they, that's where the extraordinary person comes in. That's extraordinary. true. I've got a couple of food questions, Marcia. I like food. Uh-huh. Two years after the COVID epidemic struck, what restaurant trend continues? Carry out. Carry out? Mm-hmm. And drive-through? And delivery? Carry out, I'll give you the I'll give you the answer for carry out. Thank you. Because according to the National Restaurant Association, total sales at quick service restaurants continue to exceed those at table service restaurants. Oh, really? The biggest negative impact to table service restaurants has been to the business lunch. Oh, sure. It's There's a, hardly any people doing that. Yeah. Lunch reservations in the first four months of 2022 at restaurants with an average check of more than $50 were sharply lower oh, I'll bet. than 2019 when there was no epidemic. Think about when we were younger, the the executive lunch, which you and I were never allowed to go on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go on those. Might take me. But I, no, actually, that, I did go on some of yeah, those so did I. later. But uh, yeah, the, it was very popular. That was where a lot of restaurants made their money. Yeah. And from where deals business, were made. Business lunches. Yeah. yeah. Now deals are made on Zoom calls. So Yeah, right. Okay. What new snack food have super worms discovered? It's a snack food for them. It's not for us. Oh, thank you. So yeah, superworms have discovered something they think is great, and they're snacking on it. Is this a food I would know? Is it like Rice Krispies or something? It's a food you would know, but it's not a food for us. Uh, what is it? It probably has some snap, crackle, and pop to it, though. Styrofoam. Really? Yeah, researchers say that the larvae of the darkling beetle, nicknamed superworms, just love it. A number no. of the two-inch-long creatures were recently found dining on polystyrene, the plastic packing material known by the brand name Styrofoam. And what's more, the larvae that ate it didn't die. So scientists are studying their digestive systems for microbes that might be useful in breaking down and recycling Styrofoam. You think that would just gum up their intestines? You would think so. Just wow! But superworms have discovered styrofoam. It's and their number one snack food now. Well, and no little chocolate on top or anything. <laughs> Apparently not. Okay. Or peanut butter, right? Yeah. Please, a little peanut butter on top of that. <laughs> okay, Bob. Why do we nod our head for yes and shake our head for no? 
That's interesting because we just did a question a couple of weeks ago about what country where they're the opposite of what we think they are. You know, here we nod for yes uh-huh. and no is shake. But there's very few people in the world that don't do that. Okay. The answer must come from some customs, and it must go way, way, way back, and I have no idea. No, it's not customs. Charles Darwin figured it out. He said the response spans most cultures of the world and comes from infant nursing habits. Really? Yep. When a baby nods forward, it is seeking its mother's breast, and when it turns away or to the side, it's indicating it's not hungry or in need of comfort. Support for this theory comes from the fact that a baby born deaf and blind will follow the same pattern of nodding and shaking into adulthood. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, they they just intrinsically know that uh, if they want something, they nod yes and back and forth for no. Who knew? Yeah. That's that, fascinating. Uh, yeah, so Darwin, yeah, studied all these people, including the deaf and the uh, blind. That's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay, the first commercial flight The first commercial plane flight. Now, we know there were planes, the Wright brothers and all this, but the first service that charged you to get from one place to another, where did that travel to? I'll give you some answers here, okay? Okay. New York to Boston, Amsterdam to Paris, Toronto to Chicago, or St. Petersburg to Tampa. The first commercial airline flight service. I'm thinking... Uh, the first one, New York to uh, this Boston. Is, this is 1914. 1914, yeah. New York to Boston, the yeah. first one? Mm-hmm. No, it's not that one. Want to give it a second choice? Tampa. It is. It was Tampa to St. Pete. Isn't that interesting? It's not, how far is that? It's only 21 miles. Is it really? But here's the thing. The same journey took two hours by steamship, and it only took 23 minutes on a flying boat. That's what they called it, because they were competing with oh, the boat. Geez. Okay. Want to guess when and where the first televised Olympic Games took place? I think that was 1960, and that was uh, Japan. Good guess, but no, 1936. Oh, really? Yeah, hard to believe that. Oh, the Berlin Olympics were televised. (gasps) Right, Adolf Hitler wanted to strut his stuff, and he created and supervised what he called his Village of Peace in Berlin, Germany. Mm. Uh, They used three cameras to film the events and gave Hitler the opportunity to promote Nazi propaganda Mm -hmm. and be non-threatening to the world. The Fuhrer spin machine backfired (laughs) when African-American sprinter Jesse Owens captured Mm. four gold medals. Yes. And it undercut Hitler's claims of Aryan supremacy. Of course it did. (laughs) It's interesting that the Germans had so much technological superiority. You know, some of the first jet engines were out of Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see what they were on their way to an A-bomb, right, an atom bomb. They were first with tape recorders, you know, audio tape recorders. First with uh, video television calls back Uh and forth between Berlin and other cities. And then this thing about televising the first Olympics. It's amazing. I wouldn't have never ever thought that it went back to 1936. But he had three cameras set up to film the events. But there's no tape to prove that it happened, so we don't believe that. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I'm going to finish up with an Ann Landers quote. Can you give me a little Ann Landers? This is Ann Landers. (laughs) That kind of a speech impediment. You said a lot of fascinating things. Thank you. Including this. (laughs) She said, know yourself. 
Don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. <laughs> well, that's true. Your dog's going to like you regardless. If you continue to feed him. <laughs> you're it. You're gold. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.